Recovery Radio, where we discuss substance abuse treatment and recovery. You can listen live at blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. Please note that the views and opinions of our hosts and guests are not necessarily the views of OCG, nor is it meant to replace professional advice or the advice of your physician. And now, here's our show, Roach on Recovery, with your host, Orville Roach. Welcome, welcome, folks, to Roach on Recovery. We are back after our new one-week hiatus. Is that the way to pronounce it? Yeah, that sounds about right. This is Roach on Recovery, your host, Orville Roach, along with my producer and co-host, Chris Morales, in the house. In the building. 646-564-9909 646-564-9909 is the number. 646-564-9909 is the number if you want to call and speak to us. If you just want to listen to the show, you can go to our show website. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. Again, that's blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. And you can also listen, listen to the show live via the call-in line if that's their only means to do so. Then by all means, make it happen. Not even a chance to get a word no in. No way. Just, just right to the... Right, cut right to the chase. I don't really have much, but I have a... Biz, uh, a business question for you if you were going to be an executive in the NFL. Shoot. We are, we being us 49er fans here in the San Francisco Bay Area. At which I care not. <laughs> decided not to cut Colin Kaepernick before April 1st. Thereby guaranteeing thereby his salary. Thereby guaranteeing his $11.7 million or whatever it is. Yet they are still looking to trade him or offload him and are also stating that if they, if a quarterback that they like falls to them in the first round, yeah, they, they want to cut ties with him. If that's the case, why not cut him before you owe him 11 point whatever million dollars? That's a question to me. Yeah, oh. you're the executive. And you also have to keep football operations in mind. You know the game, and you know how to be an executive of a company. Let's hear it. 
Well, I wouldn't have done that, but I have to guess that their thinking is that they believe they can trade him. Okay. That's the only thing I can think of is that they believe they can trade him. Right. Or they're going to keep him. Huh. I I think if they I think you're right. I think if they don't if they don't trade him, they will keep him. I'm not convinced if they keep him, he'll be the starter. And that's a well, lot of money to pay a pay a bench quarterback. Well, your new coach, Vanilla Chip Kelly, <laughs> seems to want him. I don't know if that's just uh, fluff talk. That's or, fluff. Well, that sounds like a personal San Francisco Bay Area question. <laughs> because I can tell you, Chip Kelly has also, public, has gone out to say what he looks for in his quarterbacks mm-hmm. are quick reads of defenses and accuracy, mm-hmm. both of which Kaepernick does not possess. He can't read a defense for the life of him, so they had to simplify the offense where he was only reading one side of the field. A play well, would be called to the right or the left. And on top of that, when he's ready to release, he's far from accurate. Well, let me just say this. I find it interesting that they say that's what Chip Kelly likes because so Well, he far, said that's what he likes. Well, so far in the NFL, he has not had a quarterback that fits that mold. Right, and this is why he says he hasn't won at the rate he expects to win. Yeah, okay. You you adapt to who you have and you change. You know, you don't – that's what most great coaches do. Anyway, uh, we have the fourth pick. You do indeed. Yes. Now, is there any talk about Dallas trading up? Because there's talk about the Niners trading – Yeah, there's been talk about the Niners trading up to the number one pick. There's no need for them to trade up unless there is a particular guy that they want that – Regardless, that's the guy that they want. I do not value. Yeah, I don't think that there is anyone that fits that. So I think they'll just see how it plays out. I have no problem if they go with Jalen Ramsey, the cornerback. Okay. I have no problem if they go with Joey Bosa, the defensive end. Yeah. And I have no problem if they take Ezekiel Elliott, the running back. Oh, man. I will have a – yeah, he's a three-down back. Running back with the I have, number four pick? Listen, someone wrote a great article about when you have and are going to have, for at the very least, the Offensive next six line. to seven years, the most elite line in the league, you do that line justice by having an elite back run behind it. You don't say, well, anyone can run behind this line. No, if you can get an elite back, that's what you do. So that's why I don't have a problem if at number four, Elliot's there, and the other guys that they wanted are off the off the table. Take them because it's better to have an elite player uh, if he's the best back in the thing and he's the best. If he's on your board. Take him. What I, what will I? What would disappoint me greatly is if they took a quarterback. Okay. Well, the point with running backs is, and you could look around the league today. All it is very rare that those elite backs, the elite backs that we have today, that cannot be found in the later rounds. Many of the starting running backs today that are considered elite, with the exception of the two rookies last year, and we don't know whether or not they'll be elite, Gurley and whoever else it was. Well, Gurley's going to be elite. They, they, you can already tell. All the other elite backs are late-round picks. I know that, but every now and then, through, a, through their body of work, somebody comes along where you can look at them, and all the scouts agree. Yeah. There's a reason why, by the way, who won the Heisman? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Derrick Henry from Alabama. Yeah. He's not even in the conversation. Mm-hmm. 
No one's talking about this guy. Oh, right. No, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. They're talking about the guy who didn't win the Heisman. True. So I have no problem if they take the – You just don't want a quarterback. Do not want a quarterback. What's your plan for, I mean, Romo's – Third or fourth round. Okay. If a they project? Can, if they can get a defensive – if they can get the defensive end in the first round and Derrick Henry in the second, I'll, I'll be happy. Yeah. Is uh, if what, if Elliott is gone, by the way, the Jason Garrett is he a bit of a quarterback guru? Would he know how to take a fourth round pick and coach him up? Is he known for that? Does he have a track record? With he doesn't have a track record track record for that because he's had Romo from day one. Yeah. Um, but Wade Wilson's been around for a while, That's and right. then the other guy, Scott Linehan, has worked with quarterbacks. So Wade Phillips, Wade Wilson, Wade Wilson. That's right. Um former quarterback That's for the right. Minnesota right. Vikings. Uh, so we shall touch on this. Yeah, more later. I don't care our, who we our, draft. Our, <laughs> wait a second. Yeah, our next show will be draft week. That's right. So we'll have, more, right. we'll have more to say on that subject. Great. All right. Let's get right to it. Um, we're going to get into our topic, but we're going to do our topic with a little recap. Okay. So we've been going through our unwritten philosophies and kind of listing them. We started out with the core four, Mm -hmm. honesty, trust in your environment, act as if, responsible love and concern. I wrote an op-ed online, by the way, about trust in your environment. Okay. So that was the core four who we we believed that were the four most important unwritten philosophies. We then went with the next four and then called the entire group the Elite Eight. That's right. So the next four were you can't keep it unless you give it away, no free lunch, and then our last show, we did Guilt Kills. That's right. <laughs> That's right. And today we're going to wrap up the Elite Eight with uh, To Be Aware is To Be Alive. It's a big one right there. Now, before we get started, let me ask a question. From your treatment experience, uh-huh. what was the most utilized or overutilized, even in a positive sense, I'm not talking about a negative sense, even in a positive sense, utilize or overutilize unwritten philosophy during your treatment experience? Honesty. Okay. So for me, it was to be aware is to be alive. To be aware is to be alive would probably be number two or three on that list mm-hmm. for me, because that, that was utilized and overutilized a lot too, but honesty was like a daily, multiple times a day deal. So, from at least my my perspective, uh, there are very few unwritten philosophies. I'm not saying there aren't any others, but there are very few, maybe one, two, or three, uh, that have such a wide-reaching touch on possibly almost, almost, I'm saying actually, but almost everything you may do in 
the treatment experience. Okay. Um, and the recovery experience. So I've kind of broken it down into some categories of where to be aware is to be alive can be discussed. Emotional awareness, mental awareness, physical awareness, environmental awareness, and spiritual awareness. Awareness everywhere. All kinds awareness of all, over the board. all kinds of awareness, yeah. Now what do we mean when we say emotional awareness? So the analogy that I've used with clients in seminar fashion, you're on the line at the supermarket reading a magazine, long line with your shopping cart. And as is always the case, someone tries to mosey on and cut cut the line. <laughs> Maybe even cut right in front of you. Oh, okay? yeah. Sometimes it's a few car, carts up. Who knows? Sure enough. At that moment, that instantaneous moment, what are you feeling? Now, what are you thinking? What are you feeling? And being able to identify that, I'm only using it as an analogy, but it applies to any situation, right? Yeah. Being able to identify instantaneously, or as instantaneously as humanly possible, what you are experiencing feeling-wise, and the progression of feelings, you know, there's the initial feeling, okay? Mm -hmm. And we talked about it when we did our feelings show about how more often than not, people respond to the last feeling and which a lot of times is anger. Mm-hmm. I'm pissed off, you know, but we they skip over the one, two or even three feelings that may occur prior to them ending up with being angry. Right. So being able to identify the progression of what you're experiencing, even if it ends up on in in anger or frustration or whatever, um is important to your existence in the, in recovery, your success in recovery, your survival in the word in the world, literally and figuratively. <clears throat> what do I mean by that? Excuse me. <clears throat> if you do not know, if you're not aware of what you're feeling and going through at all times. You may make decisions that may not be in your best interest because you're not aware of your feelings and therefore not in control of how you're acting yeah. and, and thinking and making decisions, etc. So as the counselors used to say back in, in Daytop, to be aware is to be alive. You must be aware of what you're feeling at all times so that – well, why? So that you can – Always control what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Your feelings don't control you. Your feelings don't dictate what, you, dictate what you do. But you must be aware of how you're feeling so that you can control how you act, what you say, so on and so forth. Great. So in that analogy of the guy who cuts in front of you on the uh, the grocery the grocery line, line <clears throat> And as you experience whatever the feelings are, and, and each person may experience something differently, 
sometimes I have found it humorous <laughs> that the person had the gall to just like would note that that they would think no one would say anything and they can just walk right up there and cut seven people. Um, <laughs> Little shock in there. Yeah, shock and awe, and or you know it might be a person who's uh, let's say politely up in age. But well aware of what they're doing and thinking that they can get over with the age, use the age card, pull the age card out, and they're, and, and they're looking around like they don't know what's going on. They're unaware and so on and so forth. And we're, and we're not falling for that. We're not falling for that. But, again, in the analogy, you have to decide what are you going to do? How are you going to handle that? How are you going to respond? And, of course, we know we get all different kinds of feedback from the from the family in terms of what they would do. The whole point being – is ultimately you don't have to do anything. It's just right. being aware of how you're feeling and being able to deal with that is what's important. Now, you may say something. You know, you may come to the conclusion when, when, once you go through that process, and that process may only last a few seconds. It's very quick. But being able in your mind to say, okay, I know um, I'm upset. I feel taken advantage of, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> Okay, and you right. may decide as a result. I'm going to speak to that. Yeah. Excuse me, sir. There's a line, and it's way starts way back there, okay. way behind where you're standing. Exactly. Um, or you can shake it off and say, Ah, I'm I'm enjoying. I I need actually extra time to read my magazine before I have to put it back on the rack. Go ahead. Someone else may speak up. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. There's going to be numerous opportunities. We, all, we, we talk to clients about this often. In your inter- and intrapersonal relationships, where your lack of awareness of how you're feeling at any moment in time, especially in high-stress moments, uh, can come back to haunt you. You make decisions that are not in your best interest. You say things that you come to regret. You may do things that you may come to regret. And whenever we're talking about that, we try and use the analogies of people who've done things or said things. That, you know, They might have done something that caused them to get locked up. They may have said something in court to the judge out of order that caused them to get an extra 30 days or something tacked <laughs> on you know, just yeah. for that smart remark and yeah. so on and so forth. So – being aware of how you're feeling at any moment in time, you know, serves a purpose. So clients as human beings are more often than not going to, in their inter- and intrapersonal relationships, have many opportunities to put this into practice. And, of course, it's magnified in the treatment environment. We purposely magnify it. You put a certain number of people in a closed, self-contained environment where they can't escape people, you know, that they like, dislike, whatever, and you have to wake up to them every day and so on and so forth. It forces you to have to deal with the uncomfortabilities of talking to someone that you may not like, talking to someone that has hurt you, talking to someone that has created feelings in you that you didn't know existed. And so it's the opportunity to practice that emotional awareness. To be aware is to be alive. What about mental awareness? 
That's an interesting one. Mental awareness. Uh, there's a relationship between mental awareness and uh, like emotional awareness mm-hmm. in my mind. Um, but to me, it more speaks of like a process, like a thought process, mm-hmm. getting in touch with, okay, I can acknowledge now if I've got emotional awareness how I feel mm-hmm. in any given instant when something happens and I'm put on the spot to respond or react in some form or fashion. Mm-hmm. But if I don't react in that second and give myself a chance to think this over mm-hmm. for, for a couple of seconds, how I might respond. Scour the land. Scour, scour the land. Um, then you give yourself an opportunity to respond appropriately, but speaking to the mental awareness, you can become self-aware of your thought process or what it is you typically think about doing or acting or or responding and when you feel when this you way. feel a certain way right oh when i feel hurt this is these are typically the thoughts that go through my mind before i choose to do something when i feel happy these are and so it's that the bridge mm-hmm. between the the feeling and the doing something mm-hmm. that is the the cognitive kind of process mm-hmm. but being aware enough of yourself to know in specific situations, this is typic- these are typically the thoughts that go through my, my head. Mm-hmm. That, that's kind of how I, I, I might define it or describe it. And so just to get esoteric just for a moment. Please do. We often hear the saying, or maybe you don't, uh, that ultimately you are your thoughts. Yeah. Okay. So if we can get someone to bridge the emotional awareness, so now I'm aware of what I'm feeling, and get it bridged over to the mental awareness, I can now make a correlation to, as you eloquently described, how I feel, and when I feel that way, how I have thought in the past, and now can I make that connection to then how I used to behave in the past. And if I can make that connection, can I then rewind the tape, go back to the feeling, go back to the thought, and do something different? Right. Or, or am I forever going to be stuck in, if I feel this way, I'm going to think this way, and therefore I am and going to act this way? And keep getting yourself in jackpots, you know, over and over and over again. <laughs> right. Okay. So that's the teaching and the message we try and get forth about bridging those two together. That's why I put the mental right after the emotional. So you eloquently stated it better than I could state it. The trick is being able to get someone to get that bridge. Yeah, I understand that there is a bridge right. there that exists. And then identify, okay, well, how did I behave in the past when this, when I thought like that as a result of feeling like that? Mm-hmm. And then, oh, okay, usually end up fighting. All right, now let's rewind the tape. You feel this way. You thought this way. Now in the future, because we're now past the feeling. We're now into the thinking. We're in the brain now. In the future, how would you respond if faced with the same circumstance? Right. 
And of course, the answer we're looking for is I would respond differently. I would do this instead of what I used to do, which ultimately got me in a jackpot. Right. And the jackpot, just for our listeners, is a term we use for anything that ends up bad. (laughs) (laughs) Anything that doesn't have a positive outcome is a jackpot. So that's the emotional awareness, which bridges to the mental awareness. Where does physical awareness come in? Now, for some, physical awareness could be actual physical awareness, your physical being, your body, right? And how, that, how you utilize that to communicate, your body language. Mm-hmm. So we used to often have, um, when you deal with people that are coming out of the criminal justice system, especially people who have been institutionalized for lengths of time, okay, they come out, they kind of have a, a certain image to them, um, and, you know, part of our job in the therapeutic environment is to break that image, make them aware of that image and have them break that image, okay? We want to speak to the real being, not the jailhouse person or the street person. We want to know who the real Chris Morales is, mm-hmm. okay? So clients have – our. Our clients are very smart. They have a way of knowing how to use their physical awareness mm-hmm. to ward us off. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. To push us away, push us back. You know, develop some sort of mechanism not to let people get too close. Yeah, yeah. Put up the shields. Yeah. Okay. And so, what we want to know, what we want to find out, is whether or not they are aware that their body speaks before they do. So as you're coming to approach someone, before a word leaves your lips, you've already said a few things. And a perceptive person yeah. can pick up on that. Pick pick up on what it is you have said before, you know, words have even left your your mouth. And once we make them aware of, hey, you, you know, your body language says something before you actually speak, what is your body language speaking? And so we want to hear them verbalize that and to see whether or not they have physical awareness. Some do, some don't. Play like they don't. (laughs) Serious, because we know that they use it as a tool in the environment to, uh, like we said, to keep people away from them. So, you know, sometimes we get some big muscle-bound weightlifters in, you know, bulging muscles and whatever, and, you know, tough guys. And they use that as their, as their pushback. pushback, you know. I'm bigger, stronger, and, you know, I can crush you with my bare hands. <laughs> that's right. Now, of course, for us seasoned vets, we that stuff doesn't work against us so uh we kind of laugh behind closed doors and what whatnot. But uh to the family members who are just coming off the street, you know, that serves its purpose in certain environments. It serves its purpose on the street, serves its pur- purpose in jail, in prison. And so they then bring that into the treatment environment and attempt to continue to use it to serve a purpose. Obviously, it's our job as the counselors to spot that, see that, 
and intervene uh, by making them aware, finding out if they are aware, finding out if they're aware and purposely using it to their advantage, or if they are actually really not aware of how they're coming off and how they're pushing people away. And as a result, wondering why, why is it no one, you know, I can't really get close to somebody or close to people or no one wants to really sit and speak with me or what have you. They have no idea. Right. And so it's either the family's job or our job to urge the family to, to let them know this is how you're coming off. This is what you're presenting physically. And as a result, I'm kind of like, uh, don't want to, you know, don't want to touch you. Right, exactly. And then they've accomplished what they they've accomplished their accomplish, goal if, right. if they're if that is their purpose. So we have to be fair on both sides because there are some who have no idea that that's what they're giving off, and then there are those who actually know what they're doing and are using it, you know, to perfection. Yeah. Okay. They've got it down. And that's where we come in. The ones that are using it purposely, we have to come in and you know and chop their knees off. <laughs> Figuratively yeah. speaking, of course, uh, and let them know that we're not we're not having that. Yeah. Okay. And then try and get the family because if the family is pushed back and pushed away, the TC is not going to work. All you're going to have is a strong. It's it's, it's like you know you, you're going to have a mafia don. <laughs> no offense to my, yeah. my 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 mafia brothers and sisters. <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? Or a strong man. You know. Uh, in, in, in the treatment environment, and then next thing you know, you're going to have the development of a sub, a negative subculture, where this person is kind of running the underground environment, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Okay, and this happens often in the treatment environment, and it's our job to be aware of when it exists and uh, root it out. So that's physical awareness. What is meant by? Well, first of all. Who spelled environmental? <laughs> Nobody needs to know. Yeah, that says environ. That's that's. It doesn't say environmental, but that's uh, right. No one needs to know. No one. No one can see. No mental. No one can see our screens. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so, what's environmental awareness? That's maybe the most obvious one um, for even folks who are not familiar with. Program speak can save your life. Yeah, being aware of your surroundings, mm-hmm. being aware of your surroundings, and not, you know, the, and not in such a linear way either, where you just like being aware of the room you're in or whatever. But you're the surroundings can come in many forms. Mm-hmm. The the crowd that you've ended up with at a birthday party of someone, or the you know the people that are in the environment that you're in the area. If you're unfamiliar with an area, the, the actual geographic area that you're in, mm-hmm. um, as well as, yeah, your, your immediate surroundings, I guess is a better way to put it because it's important to be aware of that as well, mm-hmm. but they all come into the picture in some form or fashion. Yes. So environmental awareness is not as important in the treatment environment right as it is prior to the treatment environment obviously being you know if you're in the streets or in jail or in prison or wherever you are right and after the treatment environment right do i have time for a short story go for it short story time so when my wife and i moved out from new york 
and we were looking at places, mm-hmm. uh, possible homes. Now, I prefaced this with saying we knew nothing about the Bay Area. We didn't know what was bad, what was good. You know, you know, this was a good neighborhood, bad. We had no correlation. Okay, so if you said the mission, we we wouldn't know that's good or bad. If you said East Oakland or West Oakland, we wouldn't know if that's good or bad. Okay? Right. So we're looking in the newspapers, right, and looking at places and you know so on and so forth. And we, so we take a trip over the bay to Oakland, okay, <laughs> and we're looking for a particular house, okay, and we stopped at a gas station to ask for directions from some other dudes in the car that were gassing up their car. Yeah. And they said, oh, Joe, just follow us. We'll, we'll, you know, lead you there. Oh, uh, no. So <laughs> we're following no. them for about three or four blocks. And I say to my wife, I said, mm-mm, they make the left, we make the right. And that's and it. That's and we it. are and gone. gone. And <laughs> I said to her, I said, that was a setup right there. Just the way they were driving, making the turns, and so on and so forth. And she said, well, how do you know that? I said, when you grew up in South Jamaica, Queens, you can spot that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's they a hustle. Knew, they knew we weren't from – just by the the nature of my question and the way I acted, they knew I wasn't from around here. Yeah. And they, but what they didn't know is that I came from a neighborhood just like that. Right. I may not have been from that neighborhood, but I, my neighborhood was just like that. And so – I know that you know that I know that you know that I know that you know that I'm not from here, but I'm not that unaware that I don't know what you're trying to pull. Right. We quickly made our way back to the highway and just uh, went back to our current place. <laughs> went back and to said, the other okay. side of the bay. I said, all right, we need to do some asking around of people who actually know <laughs> the areas <Yes. laughs> before we venture out. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So that was a good lesson learned. That is so, indeed. Environmental awareness, and when I was thinking about this last night, and you mentioned a little bit that it it's important to have environmental awareness because it can save your life. Obviously, no being aware of your where you're at, good, bad, or ugly, could eventually determine whether or not you are harmed or not harmed. But what we're what we are concerned about are clients once they leave the treatment environment and you spoke to this a little bit, is having the wherewithal, the environmental awareness to read situations, read environments, predict if an environment may be going downhill or is about to go downhill Mm -hmm. quickly, and being able to make decisions based on that. Or... Do you sit there with your mouth open and just watch as things unfold and you're just frozen in time but not taking any action? So we try and teach, especially those who may not come from environments where this is like kind of built in. Yeah. As you grow up, you kind right. of got this survival instinct built into you. Right. And so if you don't have that, you have to develop it. And like you said, if you go, if you're going to a party or a wedding or any kind of social mm-hmm. engagement, and the atmosphere is going south quickly, you know, and everyone is brewed up and you know and doing whatever and whatnot, and all of a sudden the environment becomes something that you know what violates your standards of what's acceptable to you. Do you take action on that or do you not? Right. That becomes the question. Our hope is that you take action and you say, hey, you know what? 
I've had fun. Looks like it's heading to another level. A little bit above my level, but I enjoyed my time, I, and I guess I'll be talking to you guys uh, tomorrow, and you step off. And that's it. Okay. And we've said over and over again, these are things we have to role play. Right. Because these are real situations that will arise, will come up for people in, you know, in, in, the, in the latter parts of their recovery experience. And you've got to have a game plan of how you're going to handle it, how you're going to respond. Mm-hmm. You've got to go back. Some people, not everyone has the ability or the, the, are fortunate enough to be able to move to a quote-unquote quote safer neighborhood. Right. So they may have to go back to where, whence they came. Okay, how are you going to handle that environment? How are you going to handle the, you know, your friends from around the way coming up to you and say, "Hey, where you been? What you been doing? You know, you look good. Mm-hmm. What's up?" <laughs> right. You know, how are you going to respond to that and be able to keep on stepping, but without being disrespectful, without being uh, putting off, having physical awareness to to not put off. Uh, I'm better than you vibe. Right. Okay. Um, but being able to be respectful, have dignity, et cetera, but also have that environmental awareness of knowing that you can engage and be able to step off. Yep. Yep. Exactly. So that's a process. It takes time to develop it. Yeah. That in time, yeah. <laughs> especially that. Because we get calls about that mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. Oh, what do I do about, you know, my old friend? I've known my friend forever, my old friends or my old neighborhood. or And this all speaks to that exactly. And having that keen awareness to be able to navigate that situation while still being self-aware that you are respecting your own limits, your own boundaries. But I don't think we role played enough in the treatment programs. We, I, yeah, I would agree. And so people can feel confident when they go out there that and they able to do they that. practiced with this. If this situation presents itself, I've kind of practiced how I would respond. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? We're practicing almost everything else. You know, we're learning. We're learning and practicing other things. But are we learning? Are we practicing the real environments that? the thing that we're going to face in the, in the environments, the real environments that we're going back to. So role play is the answer, in my opinion, to that. I agree. I think it's great practice. And we don't do, we, we have done it. Oh, just, I know we've just done it. Not, I, just not my, often. If I, if I, you know, I have a couple of pet peeves, but if I had one of them is I don't think we've done it enough. Mm-hmm. Okay. I know we do it. And other programs do it, but I don't think it's, done enough for you know how you were talking about last show I think it was last show about you know the changes and how our treatment is changing and one of the you know the positives to that are people are no longer going to be going falling off this cliff so you're not going to be like in treatment for nine months and then boom you're just you're dropping down right to just outpatient yes you know you're going to have this kind of stair step mm-hmm. in and down so that you can acclimate yourself to the different things that are coming your way as you go through the process, right? Sure. Well,
if we incorporate more role play into that, because since people aren't going to be, you know, uh, have the benefit of the residential environment as long as we used to in the past. Okay. True. And so it makes it even more important for us to be aware of what people are going back to and prepare them. I always like to prepare the person for the environment that they're going back to, not for the environment we hope they're going back to. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. I'll be a little more realistic about right. it. Let's touch on and let's hope that we don't get any no flames shoot up or no lightning strikes our <laughs> studio spiritual <laughs> awareness. Oh, man, yes. <laughs> I know this may be a touchy subject for some, but it's not for me. No, no fear. Because I did not say religious awareness. I said spiritual awareness. And that there can be defined difference. however you want to define it. Yeah. Okay. Um, but one thing that cannot be it can be argued, but I don't think it can be argued successfully, is we have different components that comprise us, mm-hmm. right? And so today we're talking about emotional awareness, mental awareness, physical awareness, environmental awareness, and oftentimes we see people go through treatment and come back. Go through treatment yes, and come back. Go through treatment and come back. And the question is always, and sometimes they even ask themselves, what is it that I'm either missing when I'm going through treatment or that I'm missing when I am outside of treatment? Mm-hmm. And if I have a person that has been, you know, cycled through three times or more, let's say, Okay, I then start to ask, are you missing a component mm-hmm. in your actual life, kind of creating that void, so to speak? And oftentimes it's that component, that spiritual component. And again, I want to make sure we carefully state that when we say spiritual, we're not speaking religious. Right. Okay. And we're not speaking specifically G-O-D, okay? We're speaking, and I hope I can articulate this properly, we're speaking to a larger-than-you purpose, mm-hmm. okay? So not a self-centered me, but a larger-than-me purpose, and however that manifests itself. Whether sure. it's helping others, whether it's giving back, whether it's volunteering, whether it's, you know, whatever it may be, however it manifests itself, okay? Mm-hmm. I just call it the spiritual component, okay? Yeah, that's what it is. And sometimes people are just focused on, I am working, I'm going to school, and that's it. That's all, that's all they're doing. Their whole life is just comprised of that in their, in their recovery, and they wonder, well, I just don't feel fulfilled, or I don't know, there's something I'm missing, and so on and so forth. So, well, how are you? Feeding the other aspects of you. Right. So you're making money, you have a place to live, you're going to school, you're working on improving yourself in these areas and so on and so forth, working on your relationship and so on and so forth. But what about something that's a little bit bigger than who you are as a person? Right. 
So as we, when we bring that up and we have to, you know, do the rope a dope and, you know, dip and dive and, you know, duck the, the verbal fire that comes back to us. Um, one of my favorite sayings when I uh, was a counselor, you know, people would come into treatment. And this is not a knock. This is just an observation that I would make. And this is without knowing anything about them prior to. The only thing I know about you walking in the door is that you're an addict. Right. That's all I know. Okay. And they get heavily into going to church and religious observance Mm -hmm. and all of that. I have no problem with that. But I'm a firm believer in God helps those who help themselves. That's very true. Okay. So you can't be on one hand. Going to church every Sunday. <laughs> and then on Monday morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Smoking dope in the bathroom. Yeah, that's right. That's right. No, those two don't go together. So I have a full expectation that if you arrive into treatment and that you're going to be heavily involved, maybe because at a different time in your life, this was something that was a significant part of your life, mm-hmm. and you want to get that back as a part of your life, I have no problem with that, and it would even... If you told me that that was the case, I would say, why don't you think about bringing that back into your life? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but then you got to walk the, you know, walk the walk. You know what I'm saying? That's right. You yeah. Gotta walk of the course. walk. And I'm going to hold you to that with no problem. I, you know, if you're going to wake up every Sunday morning, because we have late wake ups, right? Ten o'clock wake ups. If you're going to wake up early so you can get out and get get dressed and go to church and your Sunday finest. Okay. I don't want to see you in the book Sunday afternoon. <laughs> that's <laughs> for cursing out that's, staff. That's right. That's right. Cause then I'm going to call, call into question your church going serious question. What's going on at the church? Why are you going and what are you getting out of it? That you can come back and be put in the books for cursing staff out that, that soon. Right. So we joke, but it does happen. So I've been known in my counseling days to use to be aware, to be alive as like my go-to unwritten because so many things connect and speak to it. You walk past that wrapper on the floor in the hallway. To be aware, to be alive, pick that up. There's a dust bunny in the corner over there of the closet. To be aware is to be alive. <laughs> That's it. Clean that up. The garbage lids aren't sparkling like they should be. Even though it's a garbage container, it should still be sparkling. To be aware is to be alive. You didn't see that? Take care of it. All the pull-ups. What do we, can you explain to our listeners what we mean by pull-ups? Yeah. Ph- physical pull-ups. Physical pull-ups, so kind of like the host was just touching on, if there is something out of place in the physical environment, a dust bunny or something is not clean that should be clean, something physical needs to take place to tidy up or or make that area P and Q, which we call it here, meaning you put your pride and a quality effort in cleaning that area, um, then another resident will 
administer a pull-up, which is a form of holding your peers accountable to, hey, how could you be sitting on the couch here in the dining room with the floors in the state that they're in and not go grab a dust mop or a mop and clean that? You're, you're accepting the environment to be in a state that it shouldn't. And so another one of your peers, another resident in the program with you, might raise your awareness to that situation. Right. To be aware is to be alive. And well, I'll just add, and most of the time, it's not due to lack of awareness that the attitude has not been corrected. <laughs> it's due to sheer laziness. But and, and 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 that's why I could walk around all day saying, "To be aware is to be alive." Mm-hmm. Because just using the physical environment <clears throat> and the lack of awareness of various things in the physical environment that should be should not be how they might be. Um, to be aware is to be alive. That's right. And then eventually I want to work it work it out to make the connection to outside of treatment and how n- not being aware is going to have a derogatory impact on you. If we don't make that connection, then it's always going to be about, you know, just the dust bunny or the, mm-hmm. the wrapper on the floor mm-hmm. so on and so forth. But I eventually, once we, you know, sufficiently, uh, you know, 75 to 80 times talk about the dust money, the wrapper, the toilet paper, and the paper towels and all that stuff, we want to be able to take it outside of the treatment realm into the real world and establish a connection that they can actually, you could see in their eyes that they get it. So... We talked a little bit about this last week. By you not, by either one of two things. Either you not seeing the wrapper and just walking, you know, you're walking right past it and you didn't see it. So your awareness was low. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then I would say, now give me an example of how low awareness outside could have a detrimental effect on you. So you have to give me an example. Mm-hmm. So that's one. The other one is they see the wrapper, make eye contact with the wrapper, may even give the wrapper a head nod. Hey, what's up? And then just <laughs> and keep it moving. And just keeps on moving. Okay. And so that's a different conversation. What was that about? So there was some awareness, but you actually ignored the awareness ignored it, made a conscious decision not to respond to your awareness. Okay, so now make an analogy, make a connection to me how that same behavior could have a detrimental impact to you on the outside. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, the goal is trying to see if mentally, remember we talked about mental awareness, Mm -hmm. if they can make that connection. We keep saying the word connection, Earlier, we used the word bridge. Yeah. If they can make that connection and cross, create that bridge where they have that understanding of how these things interconnect. Right. Coexist. Relate to one another. How the wrapper, not seeing the wrapper is just as important as, you know, 
back being you know being in your car and putting it in reverse and not seeing the kid on the bike yeah. walking by you know riding behind you in your driveway right you know not looking before you let off the brake not being aware of that you you live on a block where there's a lot of kids you know running around riding around on skateboards bicycles and whatnot you know all over the place not being aware being aware of that or not being aware of that or having low awareness and so you don't respond accordingly and then develop what is it called uh, when you train your muscles to do a certain thing? Muscle memory. Muscle memory. So every time you get in that car, you always, boom, you look both ways before you back out of your driveway. That's right. Yeah, it becomes second nature. Exactly. Because you became aware of the, your surrounding environment. Right. Now, let me throw out a question, Mr. Producer, to you. Mm-hmm. Out of all the different awarenesses that we spoke about, emotional, mental, physical, environmental, and spiritual, if you had a client before you, yeah, there's no right or wrong answer. Yeah. It's just your, your own personal thing. Sure. Uh, which one of the awarenesses would you want them to focus on first? Depends. See, it depends. So he takes the depends route. <laughs> it depends because there is, like you said, there is no right or wrong answer. And the mm-hmm. reason there's no right or wrong answer is because every one of them is applicable. Mm-hmm. So I have to take into account the client before me and what I believe, what they particularly need to work on. I'll, if you want me to speak very generally, yes, I'll say if it's a male client, probably the emotional awareness. Mm-hmm. Because men especially some of the men we get from jail, prison, whatever, little hardened, they do not want to be in touch with their emotions. They have shut their emotions off 20 years ago. If they ever shed a tear, someone will stab them in the middle of the night. Their, their, their relationship with their emotional side is non-existent. And they pass messages back and forth <laughs> like North and South Korea. Right. And, um, and especially kind of like in the chain that we spoke about things and the, the link that one connects to the other is mm. the start of the ball. The start of the ball rolling is that emotional piece. Yeah. And so if I'm working with a male client, that may be the piece that I want you to work on getting in tune with, mm-hmm. because I believe if we can get you in tune and in touch with that, that may solve indirectly. That may solve some of the problems that you've been having because now we've fixed the foundation and that moving forward can get you to eventually a place where when we get to the action phase, your actions are going to be a little different because you respected the fact that you're feeling a certain way and you can work on that. Mm -hmm. So that would be for like male clients. Now it might be different and it well, and it would be different in this context for a female client Mm -hmm. because again, and I'm speaking generally, but for the most part, females are very in touch with their emotions. In fact, they usually lead with their emotions. And so I may want to speak to a female resident about that bridge that we spoke about. Mm -hmm. God, I'm going to get in trouble tonight. (laughs) (laughs) But that, uh, where we we have an emotion, we're overwhelmed with an emotion, and we have like a bridge or something to filter that emotion through cognitively. So again, when we get to that action phase, because that's 
the ultimate goal with an addict or anyone else is we might feel or think a certain way, but it's our actions that we're going to be held accountable for. And that's the, that is where the moment you see correction. Mm-hmm. And so allowing yourself to have whatever emotion it is that's leading how you're feeling in a certain moment, but build that bridge, that mental awareness to say, okay, you know, let me run this through a, a mental filter, a cognitive process to think about, you know, whatever it is I need to think about with how I'm feeling to reason something out before I decide I'm going to act on mm-hmm. that moment. <laughs> I just want to say as a program note, that was Chris <laughs> Morales speaking. Uh, you set me up. That was a setup. And that's C-H-R-I-S, <laughs> Morales. That was speaking for the last few minutes on the subject of females and their emotional being. Yeah, yeah. Well, so let me. There it is. All right. So let me let me help wrap that up a little bit. I will not use my name for this part. You said. (laughs) You said, in terms of with a male client, generally speaking, that. The reason why you would want to touch on the emotional awareness is mm-hmm. because, generally speaking, men aren't as in touch with their emotions as women are. Right. Okay? And just for the sake of argument, when we say that, we're not talking about that they're crying and blubbering and all that stuff, but just able to identify How they and really speak, feel. speak to their emotions. Right. Yeah. And you then said, Chris Morales, that... If it was a female client, generally speaking, Chris Morales, that they are usually, generally speaking, more in touch with their emotions. So just on that point, that why both sides have something that they have to do, even the person that's in touch and the person that's not in touch. Because even the person that's in touch, okay, Mm -hmm. still has to be able to... You can, you can be from an outside looking in. Someone looking at you can see that you are in touch with your feelings. Mm-hmm. The question is, can you articulate them? Sure. Can right. you name them? Okay. And so even someone that's in touch with their feelings, they have to learn how to name what they are. They have to be able to say, I'm hurt. I'm frustrated. I feel rejected. I'm in pain. They have to use words to identify the feelings. So even though we can say, hey, we can tell that person's in touch with their feelings, we still want them to be able to name them. Right. So even the person, so the point I'm just making is that even the person, whether it's male or female, that's in touch with the feelings, still has to be able to have the emotional awareness includes being able to name the feelings. And the person who's not in touch with their feelings, that's a whole different story. Mm -hmm. We're not even worried about them naming them. We just want to see, do you you know what the emotion is? Right. You know what I'm saying? Right. Or more often than not, they are able to display one emotion, which is anger. Mm -hmm. So they can bypass everything else and and end up in anger and be able to physically display that. You can see that more often than not. Yeah. I'll make sure that I cut and paste that clip <laughs> and have it ready for the next show. Just, you know. Oh, uh, yeah. So, in closing, the last of the Elite Eight, to be aware is to be alive. 
and as I wrote in our program description, I believe that this unwritten philosophy probably has the widest tentacles in terms of what it touches. I agree with today that. Today we talked about the emotional, having emotional awareness, mental awareness, physical awareness, environmental awareness, even though we spelled it incorrectly, and spiritual awareness. All of those are very important. That's all I got. Perfect. Good show. Uh, we do see we have some callers on hold who do want to participate in the Recovery Support Time segment. That is coming up next, so we are going to take a quick commercial break, a little music break, and we will get to the callers on the other side.
Coming up next is OCG Radio's Recovery Support Time, where our hosts provide support and guidance for your recovery-related questions and issues. Recovery Support Time, where it's our time to help you. What the short version? That was the short version, indeed. Yeah, we weren't going long version for this one. <laughs> All right, that's the X Files. <clears throat> Let's get to some of our letters. Frank from looks like Marin. I'm sure it's not Marlin. By the way, I have a pip in my mouth. So uh, of course, as always, <laughs> it's tradition at this point. Uh, getting sober from meth, and I feel like life has no purpose. So I'm gathering, that means, I guess he means he's in the early stages of getting sober from meth. And I feel like life has no purpose. And that is only a feeling. And it will pass as long as you allow yourself the time for it to pass. This is part of what I call paying the piper that there is a consequence to drug use. And sometimes that consequence is physical uncomfortability when we're trying to get off of using drugs or emotional uncomfortability or other uncomfortabilities. And the key is to understand in the early days of the recovery process, especially coming off of a drug like methamphetamine, that that first 30-day period is going to be hard and you have to get through it. Because if you don't get through it and you don't survive it, at some point you're going to have to do that 30-day period again and again and again and again. So there's no way around it. There's no way to, to skip you can't jump over it. So 
the best thing to do, if, especially if you're in a treatment environment, while you're going through that uncomfortability, whether, again, whether it's emotional or physical, that you find a peer to talk about it with. And I'm sure there are peers in there that are going through the same thing coming off of meth. Certainly are. So you can share and talk about it together. Um, Justin from Daly City wants to know what role can the criminal justice system play in addressing drug addiction? I have a very interesting take on this. <laughs> I imagine you might. So back in the uh, up until the let's say the mid nineties, nineteen ninety five, ninety percent of the people going into treatment were going in voluntarily. So obviously that presents a different environment in the treatment environment. Post-1995, criminal justice became heavily involved in subsidizing, paying for, and referring people into treatment programs um, in exchange for sent- you know, serving time in prison. They would modify your sentence to a treatment program if you, did, if you were an addict or you did have substance abuse problems, et cetera, et cetera. What that then created was – Instead of someone coming in voluntarily saying, hey, I need help, it was not knowing if someone was coming in because they were trying to stay out of prison mm-hmm. or they were coming in because, hey, with their hand up, hey, I really need help. Right. Regardless of the fact that, you know, I've been paroled here, probated here, or modified here. Right. I need help. So – in some respect, you had to deal with the change me if you can attitude. Mm-hmm. Okay. Which, by the way, has happened. Yes. We've had several who I'm only here because I'm mandated, and all of a sudden they're, they're preaching the good word to all the new residents coming in behind them. Yes. So that presents, like you said, a different challenge in terms of counseling, advising, and trying to get people on the recovery track. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, though, Ultimately, doesn't the bottom line doesn't matter. I don't care how you get in, what motivates you to get in. What I care about is once you're in, whether or not the correct motivations come into play eventually, get set straight so that you can succeed. So I don't care if the judge, you know, said, hey, I'm giving you two choices, 15 years in San Quentin, or you can go to OCG. And you said, well, I'm not doing – I'd rather do OCG than 15 in San Quentin. I don't care if that's the reason you came in. Right. That makes sense. What I care about is while you're in OCG or any other program that it becomes, you know what, I need to actually change. I want to change and get my life together. So I don't have to end up doing 15 years in San Quentin. And there are people that we know who were facing 15 years in San Quentin and got an opportunity to come into treatment and mm-hmm. did not succeed and went before that same judge. And that same judge said, I'm sorry. That's it. You got to do your 15. So long answer. All right. One more real quick. Absolutely. What is that? What is it from? This is Carl from King City. What is it that makes an addiction so hard to stop, and why? Huh. So one word answer: habitual. 
and it applies whether you smoke cigarettes, whether you're an alcoholic, whether you're a cocaine addict, crack addict, meth addict, whatever. Whether you love to bet on ponies. And there you go. The habitual behavior of the uh, the lifestyle, the your whole life being shaped and planned around using is what makes it very difficult. See, you can take a person out of their environment, pluck them into a treatment program, and so, okay, the drugs aren't there. But they still have to deal with the, the habits that they've developed, the thought processes that they've developed. So it's, it's not just uh, time and distance, like, you know, plucking you out of the environment of where the drugs are and plunking you down someplace else. It's a whole lot more to it. So <clears throat> that's what makes addiction so hard to beat. Mm-hmm. And more importantly, you have to want it. That's probably the hardest thing is actually wanting it and, and being willing to commit to whatever it takes to, to make it happen. Right. There's a lot of people who want it, but not everybody's willing to commit. As we've come to find Very out true. over the years, of course. I want help. But, oh, I don't, I don't know if I want to do that. <laughs> right. What? i got to be here for seven months? Oh, yeah. No, that's um, a long time. I can do two, three, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> right. Negotiating with you on their, on their life. Right, right. <laughs> so, no, you got to make the commitment. But... Like people who smoke cigarettes, I always say the hardest part is not licking that nicotine. It's the habitual part. When you get in the car, you smoke. You know, when you finish eating, you smoke. You know, after sex, you smoke. You know, it's the habitual part of smoking that's the hard part. So you got to change that up. All right, let's go to who's been holding the longest. Let's go to Denise from Oakland. Welcome to the show. Thank you. You're welcome. So my questions are... How do I maintain, um, I want to say, my my feelings revolved around recovery when sometimes things don't go my way? Um, I expect sometimes, I notice that this happens when um, I get bored or I'm not putting my time into the proper place. I'm not directing my energy to anything and I begin to lose interest in a lot of things and I haven't lost interest in my recovery but I just want to know what are some of the things I can do to to help that. How do you view your recovery? Is is your recovery for you its own separate living thing, or is it a part of you? It's always going to be a part of me. Okay. For the rest so, of my life. Okay. So your recovery is a part of you and will be a part yeah. of you. Okay. Now, within that small little space, okay, that makes up you, okay? Yeah. Is your recovery all that you are? There's a lot of me. 
to give. I have a purpose. But no, that's not all that I have. Okay. So your recovery, although it's a part of you, it's not all of you. Okay. Right? Yes. Okay, follow me on this one now. Very important. All right. It's a part of you, but it's not all of you. And that is actually a healthy way for it to be. Okay. Because that allows you to live, be involved in all the other things in your life that you want to be involved in, that you enjoy, that bring you happiness, make you laugh, and all that stuff. Okay. And all of that can exist. Where if you flip it around, there are people, many of them, who their recovery is all of them. And so every single day of every single week, of every single month, of every single year, if they don't go to a meeting, if they don't do a certain thing, If they don't do this, okay, everything may fall apart. When what it should be, and I'm not knocking those people, I'm just saying, what it should be is that in everything that you're doing as you're living and experiencing your life, your recovery is just a part of you. But it doesn't define you. Okay. Doesn't define who I am. No. Right? Okay. I have a lot to give to recovery as well as my life and people, places and things. Um, You only got, there's only one thing you have to give to recovery. Okay. That's a full-time commitment? Commitment, that's it. Just the word commitment. That's the only thing you have to give to recovery is commitment. And if you are committed to your recovery, everything else, everything else just falls into place. Your mind is free to focus on the other aspects of your life that you want to bring back together. Okay. I needed to hear that. I've made a commitment. I'm willing and I'm able. I just, you know, sometimes you have to hear from someone else because I know I've arose into the occasion here. This is this is a beautiful thing that I've been given. Um, I just needed to hear that, you know, I need to hear that it's a commitment. So I want to I want to caution you on one thing. Okay. You, you have to be, um, you have to be able to be that other person, meaning that you have to be able to be that voice in your head that reinforces it for you. Because not all the time will will there be somebody else to reinforce it for you. So ultimately, ultimately, you have to be able to rely on yourself 
And so when you might be in a stressful period of life and, you know, with stress comes doubt and all of the things that enter your mind, you have to be able to slow everything down so that that voice can come in and say, I got this, whatever it is, I got this. Yeah. I'm solid here. Okay. Okay. Because there may not be somebody else for you to call on to reinforce that for you. Okay. So you have to be your own fail-safe system. Yes. Okay. That's, and by the way, that's worst-case scenario. More often than not, there will be people that when you're talking to them about any stressful thing that's going on in your life, that bounce things off you, that can lift you up and pick you up and help you refocus and so on and so forth, that's normally usually what happens. But you also got to be prepared for the storm on your own is what I'm trying to say. Okay? Right. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I hope that made sense. I thought it was very well put. Very well put indeed. Don't, don't want to talk in circles. All right, let's go to uh, Sal from San Mateo. Welcome to the show. Hello? Hi. Um, I just had a question. Um, as far as uh, prescription medications goes, can a person who, in your opinion, who's in recovery, go back to safely using the medications they once abused? Specifically, colonopin, benzodiazepines. Well, I'm going to turn the question around. Okay. In your gut, what's the answer to that question? Um, honestly, uh, I've been in treatment only for two days. And right now, it's like right, my let me body stop you wants right it. Let me stop you right there. Mm-hmm. If you've only been in treatment for two days, why are you even worried about this? What's the reason? Uh, mostly because um, I've been on—I was on the medication for like six years, and mm-hmm. I guess it's like the first time I've really had to mm, kind of be myself. I guess I get put on the spot and speak in front of a group and it's just I guess it's my mind is telling me I know it's an easy out and I'm why, not why talking you, like why were you on on the medication if you don't mind me asking uh, I was diagnosed with anxiety and depression about six okay. years ago okay at what point did it cross over from being a medication to assist you with your anxiety and depression to you abusing it? I would say it started uh, almost immediately after I got it because I I was drinking with the medication. So that was one of the big problems because the mixture together was um, pretty much making me not function at all. (laughs) Okay. So for you, based on your history... Okay. Mm-hmm. If I was advising you, if I was your counselor, I would say to you, 
focus on trying to get to the root of depression and the anxiety before we look to jump back to medication. Because your history with the medication is not one of use, appropriate use, it's of abuse. Right. So now it's okay, let me have let me face the let me do the hard thing and face what's what's the root of my depression, what's the root of my anxiety and see if I can deal with those things first. First, right. Yeah, it's just and kind of been on little, my and go ahead. And you talked a little bit about, you know, some of the ways that you're feeling as different things are being you're being faced with different things and how it feels to face them without being on the medication. That's part of the process. Right. Of how listen, how can I deal with this without without how the, you know, the thing, the drug I used to use to to help deal with that. And you'll be surprised at what the human mind and the human body can do. If given the ap- yeah. opportunity. Right. I'm. Uh, my plan is to give it some time. I mean, definitely right now it's really early. Uh, Great plan. Uh, and um, just see what what's out there for me without anything. Because, I mean, I'm getting pushed by doctors to, like, to go back on these antidepressants as well. And it's like I'm not even thinking that those were helping me at all. I had more... Um, I was 51, 53 times on the medication, and it was uh, just kind of scary to to put all your trust into one thing, and when it's not there or you can't make it to the pharmacy, it's like you're going to get really sick and get yourself in trouble. And oftentimes it's not necessarily something you're choosing to do or act out. It's just like um, it's kind of just what happens in my experience. Okay. More often than not, the medication is not a cure-all. Mm-hmm. Okay, it usually treats the symptom. Okay, right. you know what I mean by that? Yeah. Okay, so it would treat the symptom of your depression or treat the symptom of your anxiety, um, although there are some that, uh, you know, uh, just on the depression side that kind of work with the chemical makeup of the brain and all that stuff but um, at a certain point as you clearly stated if you don't have the medication and there's no means to get the medication what does that mean to you and if it causes you to then have a certain reaction and, and certain behaviors you have to do exactly what you're doing right now taking a hard look at how you want to approach dealing with these things. And so the best the, the the best avenue is exactly what you're doing, which is let me take it slow, let me take it a day at a time, and let me think this through, let me get some advice on this, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Well, uh, I appreciate I appreciate you guys answering my question and um I guess I just have to give it some time and just Kind of play it by ear, see how it goes, and commit. Yes. Absolutely. 
Okay. All right. Thank you for your time. You're very welcome. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Just going to have to struggle with that and try and um, fight his way through. Uh, that's a, another example of the habitual, even though right. he was abusing right. the drug. So the effect that it might should have had wasn't really happening because he was drinking and, and using it at the same time. So um, he's just used to taking them, even though he wasn't taking them as prescribed, et cetera, et cetera. So got to reevaluate that and take his time and get some advice from from the his, his counselor. All right, let's go to looks like Melissa from Salinas. Welcome to the show. Thank you. You're welcome. How can we help you? So, um I'm pretty new in my recovery and I was just wondering, I don't I'm not really a religious person, but how big I know everybody's different, but how big is spirituality in my recovery? Mr. Producer, <laughs> the reason we're laughing is because we, our, our topic today touched on spiritual awareness yeah. as, as an important part of the recovery process. Yeah, so I just your have quest- time with finding my oh. higher power. Uh, how about maybe you are looking too hard? Possibly. Probably. How about maybe you are too focused on that aspect of your com- – that component, let's call it, of your recovery? Mm-hmm. How do you define – let me ask you a question. How do you define for you spirituality? It's hard to say because I've never had it. So it would be more religion-based, which I'm not educated enough on different ones, and I've never connected with one. Okay. So when we talk about spirituality, we're not talking about religion. Mm -hmm. All we're talking about is Finding a purpose that's larger than yourself, whatever that may be, however that may manifest itself. For some people, that has a religious meaning. For some people, it has a, my hands are in quotes, a purely spiritual meaning. There's no religion attached to it. And it can manifest itself in various ways. They volunteer, they give back, the type of work they do, and, you know, things of that nature. So you have to decide for yourself, and there's no wrong answer, by the way, what that means, that component means, how large of a role it's going to play or not mm-hmm. in your recovery process and your life, okay? Mm-hmm. But one thing that it should not do if it's stressing you out, then it's not for you. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not stressed out to a point, but like every person that I've discussed <clears throat> this issue with or even in, you know, a recovery program, mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's been, it's been stressed upon me that it's something that is, 
extremely important, and you have to connect with a higher power, or you have to have nonsense. Some kind of... <laughs> nonsense. That comes from That's within you, not from not thrust from somebody else. That comes from within you. There's there's many people in recovery who have or have no involvement in that at all. Okay. So that might be their experience. You have to determine uh-huh. what's your experience going to be, what feels right for you. That's great. That's it, It's relieving because, um, like I said, I'm so new into my recovery that I did want to find that. But I'm pretty determined and motivated now on my mm-hmm. own. And if it yes. does come later on, that's fine, which is it. I mean, it's not just fine. It'd be terrific. But um, right now, I think I am stressing myself out trying to find that part of my recovery. Yeah, it's the way it works is I'm just going to give you a little secret. The way it works is it comes upon you without you actually knowing about it. Mm-hmm. It manifests itself without you actually knowing about it, but it is something that you kind of feel. Mm -hmm. So that's why another person outside of you can tell you what their experience is and, you know, what it means to them, but no one should, you know, thrust their experience onto you and say, Hey, well, this is what it should be. This is what you need to do. No, this is just what it was for me. What you have to do is take your time, feel it out for yourself and feel what, feels right for you because I'll tell you this no matter what end of the spectrum from one to the other neither one is going to have a make or break on your ultimate succession yeah okay thank you all right thank you welcome bye-bye bye-bye what do they got some uh Harry Krishnas. <laughs> you never know. It takes all kinds. Reverend Moons. <laughs> oh, good. Good indeed. We got to watch out for this in the recovery world because very true. People uh, want to push their own onto everybody else, and it's not about that. It's not about that. And some people like to interlock and intertwine, like uh, you know, you know. Religion and recovery go together. They are the two R's, like the Rolls Royce emblem, and that's not the case. So we have to pry pry people apart from that mentally, not emotionally. We have to mentally, so they can understand that it's a component of your your life, a component of your experience. It's not the whole experience, right? So. All right, let's go to Jose from San Mateo. Welcome to the show. Jose? Oh, sorry about that. Yeah, I was wondering... Um, wait a, wait a second. Uh, wait, uh, Jose? Yes? What, what were you doing, listening to the Giants game or something? No, 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 I was listening. Just wasn't uh, okay. giving it my undivided attention. I was still thinking of that manifestation. Okay, all right. Now, I, I How can we help you, up. sir? I wanted to follow up with that. Once I'm into this recovery, right, and once I find that a uh, higher power, be it a higher power, 
how do I go ahead and, and, and keep an interest to it or do I keep uh keep my attention focused on it? Has to be something that you feel and believe in. Okay. That can't be, be phony, right? can't be fake. And by the way and yeah. if it, and if and having a having a higher power or and or a belief in a higher power is not going to make or break your recovery experience. Okay. And I don't care what the, anybody tells you. I will debate that and argue that till the end of the earth. That's right. What what it does for you, however, is it complements your whole existence if you choose to have it. But it doesn't make you any less if you choose not to. Yeah. And I think sometimes people get the impression from others and wherever that, you know, it's, you know, well, if you don't have this, you're, you know, you're not going to make it. Or if you don't do this, you know, this is not going to happen. That's not the case. Okay. So you yourself have to determine, is it, you know, is it something that you want to do? Does it feel right for you? And do you want to make it a part of your, you know, your life? Because it's a part of your life. Okay. A part. The key thing is it's a part, not the whole part. Just a part. And uh, how about trial and error? Would, would I say I, I choose something, and that something turns out to not be what, it, what, I, what I was seeking, or what I thought was it was, or it meant? Nothing it. wrong with that. What's in, here's what's important. You are more. It shows more growth, more truth to recognize that and say, you know what, this is, you know, not what I thought it was. I'm not really feeling this. Let me look. Let me look somewhere else. Okay. Than to just stay there and just act like a robot and just pretend. Okay, that that comes you know with the, not being committed, like you said, right? Like, uh, so say, uh, okay, I, I understand what you mean. It's got to be right. It can't be yeah. phony. Yes, sir. And it's okay if it, it's okay to not have it. Also, that that's the important thing people got to realize. Do you understand okay. that? Yeah, I understand that. Okay. Like I don't want you to think have... that if you tr- I don't want you to think that if you try something out and, you know, after 6 months you say, "You know what? I'm really not feeling this." And you so you decide to stop and you, you know, want to give yourself some time and space to check something else out, that that makes it a failure. That's okay. not the case. You got to find that's what's right for you. That's what I was referring to as a trial and error. Yeah. We're not always Nothing wrong with that. Okay. All right, thank you. Thank you for clarifying that for me. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. What's going on with the religious calls today? Reverend Wright. You can't have... There's no saying, there's no compunction in religion. But in recovery, touched on this earlier in our topic, that having religion or spirituality, whichever one you want to call it, or and or both, okay, is not a make or break deal. There's many people who were very religious prior to them getting wrapped up in the drug scene and 
If I knew this about them, I would be the first to say to them, why don't you consider uh, embracing that again? That was an integral part of your life before and so on and so forth. A consideration, not a direction, i.e., yeah, you must do this in order to succeed. It's something to, for them to consider incorporating into their life. And I think in our field sometimes it comes off as a direction and or that you must do this and you must have a higher power and you must be involved in religion and so on and so forth. Nonsense, I say, Mr. Producer. Nonsense indeed, huh? Yeah, no, I think I, the the biggest part that stands out for me when taking these calls and your points, all of them, is the idea that it is like a piece to the puzzle, an, an aspect of your life and not the piece or your life period, but a part of many components that will make somebody whole, so mm -hmm. to speak. And that even if you choose not to, because remember, we define, we, when we said spirituality, said it's, it could be whatever it is. That's I'm, right. You know what I'm saying? So it can be whatever it means to you. It could be, and it can mean nothing. Mm -hmm. Okay? And it's okay. It's, it's not wrong. Right. We're not making any judgments on it. And, but I think oftentimes in our industry, there is a judgment. Oh, absolutely. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And, you know. We, we, I mean, we know in some uh, circles that it's an integral part sure, you know, right. of the, uh, you know, the programming, it's to put it, foundation. Not, put, it, put it lightly. Yeah. That was Chris, C-H-R-I-S Morales, <laughs> who said that. <laughs> All right. Let's go to uh, Danny from Belmont. Welcome to the show. Uh, how you doing? Good. How are you? Oh, pretty good. I just had a question. If a person has been clean for 32 years, and one of the reasons that he stayed clean is because he did not believe that addiction was a disease, would it now be uh, advantageous for him to think of it as a disease, even though he's not uh, uh a, a, a part of that addiction process anymore? If he doesn't, if he didn't believe back then that it was, and he doesn't believe now that it is, then he shouldn't pretend just for the sake of, and that of is just left hanging there, just for the sake of. He shouldn't pretend. Whatever well, his true belief is is what his, the belief should be. But a lot of times our belief uh, comes by way of, of, of ignorance because we don't, we don't know any better. Or we, we haven't heard all the information and nothing's been laid out on the table for us. And true. Some of the things I'm being taught now uh, indicates that, yes, this is a disease, whether you recognize it or not. And I'm, I'm saying to myself on that doesn't make a, a lot of sense right there if I can do fine believing that it isn't. That's okay. One of the ways to look at it is um, to let's to kind of help you wrap your head around a little bit is rather than get locked into disease or not disease, 
is look at the pathology of the behavior. Does that sound different? A little, a little different. Yeah, the pathology of the behavior. So now if you look at 20 addicts, 20 crack addicts, okay, 20 out of 20 are going to have the same pathology. Okay. Didn't say the disease word. I just said pathology. So to me, it's kind of like a – you know, unless you're sitting in the room with uh, doctors trying to determine what impact that using the drug has on your brain and whether or not, as a result of that impact, that they can then term, you know, term it as a disease. Ultimately, on the ground floor, in terms of providing treatment or being in treatment, nobody cares. Right. right. We care about trying to get people to understand the pathology of their behavior, recognize it, and develop a course of action to change it. Now, Don't you also care that they believe that they can change it? Oh, they have to. And if they believe there's some underlying or there's something else that's causing them to behave that way, then it becomes difficult to believe that they can do do without it altogether. Yes, yeah, so uh, us veterans are prepared for that argument. For example, if someone says, yes, so my addiction that I have uh-huh. to cocaine is a disease, and I may, you know, Go active or inactive at any moment in time um, because it's a disease. And I would then ask them, uh, so is your disease curable? And they'll either say yes or no or I don't know. And then depending on what their answer is, I wouldn't care what their answer is because I would say, well, whether you believe it's curable or not curable, or the fact that you don't know, I don't care. All I care about is no different than if you had diabetes. Now, can we agree that diabetes is, is a disease? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So if you had got diagnosed with diabetes, the only thing your doctor cares about is this is what you need to do, A, B, C, D, and E, in order to, A, either reduce the impact that it has on your life, be eliminated to the point where you no longer need medication, and you can do that by doing one, two, three, and four. Uh-huh. Now, how a person receives that information and what word they focus on really depends on the person. So if they heard you have diabetes, it's a disease, and that's all, and they just stop right there. They don't hear anything after that. Then that's a problem. Yeah, right. But if they focused on what the doctor said, and this is what you need to do to get rid of it, or depending on how bad it is, to manage it so it doesn't get any worse. Okay. So, what we're going to focus on here? Are we going to focus on that I'm a addict, or am I going to focus on you know what? 
I need to focus on what I'm going to do so I can no longer be defined as that. Right. Yeah, I, okay. I, I get your point. I get your point. All right, Danny. Great okay. questions. Keep them, keep them coming. Keep them coming. Okay. All right. Keeping us on our toes here. Okay. Well, thank you for All your right, input. Sir. You're welcome. Bye. Thank you. Bye. He's going to keep us on our toes with those questions, huh? He, he's going to keep them coming. You know it. <laughs> that, that's it. He's building a, a reputation. Here's the kid's problem. Or let me just not say problem, concern. Mm-hmm. He sounds like an intellectual. He is very much so. And you know as well as I know that you know that I know that an intellectual a person who intellectualizes yeah we've had this conversation things ultimately struggle more than others agree in the recovery process agree because they take something that's simple and they make it complicated super complicated okay and so the struggle becomes trying to get them to understand that you don't have to make it so complicated simplify it right so yeah by the very nature of the intellect simplification not a part of the uh, the process. Well, that's the reason why I'm going to use this generalization, but I'm not going to say my name so no one can use it against me. Uh, intellectuals don't have a very high success rate. Right. Sure. At least the first time. At least the first time around, mm-hmm. because everything is intellectualized. Nothing is internalized. That's right. Uh, I agree. How are we on time? Uh, you're done. Sign off right now. We're actually already a little behind. Okay. Uh, our next show is on the 26th, and uh, I may have a surprise guest. Hey, how about that? Keep us keep us on our toes. Uh, we'd like to thank everybody for who um, gives us their ongoing support regularly. We see it. We see the callers on the board, um, our plays in the archives going up. And so we do really appreciate all the ongoing support and do want to thank everybody for that. I also thank all the callers who called in today with some great questions. Hopefully they can apply some of what they heard here. Um, Again, every other week is the current schedule, so please dip into the archives if you need a show next Tuesday. And with that, we wish everybody a safe couple of weeks and a couple of fun and safe weekends. Go Warriors! The record is coming. Go Grizzlies!
myself alone Surrounded by strangers I thought were my friends Found myself further and further from my home And I guess I lost my way There were oh so many roads I was living to run and running to live Never worried about pain or even how much I owe our show for this evening 
Thank you for listening. Be sure to listen to our next broadcast Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Like us, friend us, and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash OCGWorkCA and on Twitter at OCGWorkCA. You can listen to podcasts of all our shows on iTunes under Roach on Recovery or on our Blog Talk Radio homepage. This has been a presentation of OCG Recovery Radio.